Thanks very much, Sean. <clears throat> All right. That was a surprisingly difficult uh, fellowship question. You know, I had a, a hard time uh, figuring out what day I wanted to relive. Do people know Groundhog Day? I feel like this is such an old movie. Yeah, do people know? Like, I know some of the older members of our church know, um, but I wonder if some of our first years have ever even heard of this movie before, or if it's you know, completely out there. It's one of those boomer movies, you know? Um, well, welcome to New Life. My name is Young, pastor here at New Life. Um, it's definitely uh, my joy to welcome you this morning as we enter into uh, Holy Week of Lent. So we are uh, edging ever closer to Easter, uh, Resurrection Sunday. Uh, today's actually Palm Sunday, as David mentioned at the top of service. Um, and he mentioned that it commemorates the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. Now, we're not going to be actually looking at that passage today. Uh, we're going to be looking at a very different one, as you heard from the Bible reading. Um, we'll instead be looking at the events that take place just before uh, Jesus' crucifixion. And so we're getting very, very close uh, to that day. And that will lead us very well into Good Friday this coming week. Um, before we get there, um, if you don't mind, I'll pray for us. And then we'll get into the sermon. Father, as we gather together, uh, we really want to put ourselves at your mercy, and we ask, Lord, for an abundance of your grace this morning, that you will be the one speaking, that indeed uh, the words that are written on the page will, will leap out at us, would not just be words that we've heard before, the gospel would not be something that we hear each and every single week, but it would be something life-changing, that it would transform the direction of our lives, it would reorient us, and it would really change uh, the order of the way that we love things in our lives. Make it, Lord, so that the gospel really shapes the way that we use all of the different resources that you've given us here on this earth, whether it's our time, our gifts, our money, whatever direction that we orient ourselves in. Today is as good a time as any for you to change the direction of our lives. We do want to lift up a prayer for those that are sick. We pray that you would heal them. We pray, Lord, especially for those with heart sickness, those of us who are still entrenched in sin, that you would revive us, that you would change us from the inside out, and that you would help us, Lord, to cling to your gospel, cling to the cross that we say is so precious to us now. We pray that Jesus would be precious to us, that you would grow a love for Jesus in our hearts, and that you would help us, Lord, to commit our lives to him. That's what we desire this morning. So would you be with us this morning? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, last week, if you were here with us, uh, we saw Jesus, the author of life, the resurrection and the life, raise Lazarus from the dead. And so this is uh, the thing that we saw last week, and today we see him condemned to death. And you must be wondering, if you're not super familiar with the story, how do we get here? And how do we get from something so triumphant with raising someone from the dead to suddenly being condemned to death himself. How can it be that the life, we've called him the resurrection and the life, 
how can it be that he's sentenced to death? After raising Lazarus from the dead, uh, we can actually read that many believed in him, but some of them go and tell the Pharisees about what they've seen, what they saw Jesus do. And then the Pharisees begin to plot, it tells us, in John 11. One of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. You're not considering that it is to your advantage that one man should die for the people rather than the whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to unite the scattered children of God. So from that day on, they plotted to kill him. So we read, not long after this Lazarus incident, that when the high priest hears about what Jesus has been doing, he hears about this from the Pharisees, he hears about this from the different people that are reporting this to him, he says that Jesus should be killed as a sacrifice, not knowing how true what he's saying actually is. And so they plot and they plot, looking for a way to get rid of Jesus. And that's how we arrive at our passage today. Jesus has been betrayed by one of his own disciples. He was bought off by the Pharisees. He's been handed over to Pilate, as we've read, the governor over Judea at this time. And you may be wondering, you know, what's up with this governor? You know, why is he handed over to a governor? The role of governor at this time was a little bit different to what we might experience in, you know, New South Wales currently, if you're of voting age. We've had to vote recently. And as far as I can tell, I'm not super familiar with the policies, but none of the politicians had policies that had anything to do with judging criminal cases. They didn't talk about anything like this. For the governor, or the prefect of Judea, his role actually entailed overseeing between 500 to about 1,000 military troops. You know, imagine if our governor had that. Financial responsibilities, and of course, like we see here, judicial responsibilities. He presides over cases. So Judea would be a headache to be a governor over because as prefect, Pilate will be expected by Caesar to have good control over the region. And yet Judea is filled with this collection of people that aren't too happy about being ruled by the Romans. But a large group of them uh, gather under one religious banner as well. And so there's this ongoing power struggle that kind of comes to the surface here between Pilate and their religious leaders. So Jesus being handed over to him is a bit of a political minefield for him to try and navigate. You know, this is a bit of a dangerous landscape for him to enter into. So what does Pilate decide? We read in verses 13 to 16, Pilate called together the chief priests, the leaders, and the people and said to them, you have brought me this man as one who misleads the people. But in fact, after examining him in your presence, I have found no grounds to charge this man with those things you accuse him of. Neither has Herod, because he sent him back to us. Clearly he has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I'll have him whipped and then released him. So Pilate admits at this point that Jesus is innocent. Imagine you go to court and you get told, hey, you're innocent, you're free to go after I whip you. you know, this is like terrible, right? He hasn't done anything to deserve death. But Pilate also doesn't really want to engage with this matter because it ultimately doesn't involve Roman citizens. It involves Jews. It involves this religious group that's causing trouble in this region. 
It's a headache for him to deal with someone who's ultimately innocent. Because what if people know about his innocence and then they rise up against him? He's accused of something in a religion that he doesn't quite understand either. Pilate's no Jew. He's a Roman citizen himself. But he knows that the religious leaders, they won't be satisfied with just letting Jesus go. There must be a reason that he's been handed over to Pilate. And there must be a reason why they're so riled up. So Pilate tries to reach this compromise with them. He's deciding he'll have him whipped. You know, when we read about being whipped, we, we might not have the correct context for this because, you know, we don't really do this these days. But likely he meant he's going to strip him naked, he's going to bind him so he can't defend himself, and then he's going to flog him with a whip, you know, with bits of bone and metal weaved into it. And it's going to be quite painful. It's going to be quite cruel. In other accounts, we hear Pilate discussing the nature of truth with Jesus. He acknowledges that Jesus is innocent, but ultimately he doesn't care about it enough to release him or to follow him, of course. He'd rather do what he can to come out with his own political career intact. He doesn't want his position to be messed with. So he tries to appease the crowd by punishing Jesus with this whipping. He's hoping this will be enough for the crowd, that he can let go of this innocent man and that the crowd will be okay with this. These are the stakes for Pilate, but it's not going to be very easy for Pilate either. We read in verses 18 to 19, then they all cried out together, take this man away, release Barabbas to us. He had been thrown into prison for a rebellion that had taken place in the city and for murder. We read these two verses, and I don't know about you, but the question comes to my mind. Why does the crowd want Barabbas instead? Why should anyone be released? It was customary at this time for a pilot to release a prisoner before the Passover. He knows what an important Jewish festival this is. He knows that this means something to this religious group that's causing him all this trouble. And so maybe it's a little bit part of his bartering act with the religious folks so that he could stay in power with these people. Now that it looks like Jesus is going to be released, the crowd is demanding for Barabbas instead. So who is this man? Who is Barabbas? Luke tells us that Barabbas is a rebel, he's a murderer, and then we don't get much more information than that. At the time of writing, Luke obviously expects his audience to know who Barabbas is. He's notorious enough of a criminal that people would know him by just this much information. It'd be like if you, I don't know, I don't know who's a popular criminal. All right. Here was someone who truly did create problems for the Roman government, though. Okay, so when we talk about people that create problems for the government, that create problems for Pilate, this is someone who actually creates problems because he will be among a group of bandits that are always stirring up trouble. They're messing with the government, they're robbing people, they're even killing people. This is exactly what Barabbas has done. He's a violent criminal. This is the irony. Jesus is going to be murdered in Jerusalem. And the criminal who's actually committed murder in Jerusalem is going to be set free. He's substituted. 
As we've been looking through our series, So That You May Live, we've been looking at things that Jesus has done on this earth. And this is what we're looking at today. He substituted. We hear about this each week, that he stood in our place. He substituted. And we see an earthly example right here with Barabbas. He substituted. So why? Why should Jesus die? He's got all this power. He's the son of God. Why should he die? Now for us, on this side of the cross, you know, when we're looking back, when we're here on Palm Sunday, we can look back and see that the releasing of this murder, it points forward to something. It points to the holy and righteous Jesus' impending death on the cross. We know what's going to take place on Good Friday. We know what's coming Easter Sunday because Jesus is taking his place and the rebel murderer is going free. There's a Greek historian at this time, Eusebius. He characterized this whole thing by saying that the crowd thundered for a murderer of life to be given to them and for the author of life to be taken from them. We can only see this from this side. Let's read on, verses 20 to 21. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate addressed them again, but they kept shouting, crucify Crucify him. What do you think about crucifixion? We talk about this week in and week out. When we talk about Jesus going to the cross, we have a cross on stage behind us. Many of us wear crosses or we have different crosses in our lives. It's no easy way to die. Like when we talk about death, I think this is like the least favorite way for me to die. I don't know, it's a really weird phrase for me to say. But in substituting, Jesus is condemned to crucifixion. This is a really cruel, painful, and humiliating way to be executed when we talk about crucifixion. I I don't want to get too graphic, but as the victim is stripped naked, he's nailed to a cross He's left out in public view until he dies. Like any time we see a painting of Jesus, he's not naked. He's covered by this very convenient loincloth that just hangs in place somehow. And this isn't the case. He's hanging there. The nails are put through his arms. And the whole weight of a person is hanging on these arms. Have you ever tried holding your arms up for a long period of time? I'm tired already. I'm doing this. I'm tired already. Which means eventually they're going to asphyxiate. This weight is going to drag him down and he's going to eventually run out of oxygen. He's going to be unable to breathe properly. And you can imagine this torturous pain because the human body wants to live. We want to live. We'll do anything we can to make sure that we can live. And so as we're hanging there, as painful as it is, we're gonna force our bodies up onto the nails that are going through our feet, through our legs, so that we can try to draw in a little bit more breath for just a few more seconds. Nail wounds would probably get infected. Not only this, Jesus was whipped anyway. You know, Pilate's original bargain for letting him go, it happened anyway. His skin's torn open by barbs. So he would continue to bleed, be at further risk of infection. 
And we add to this the shame of being hung upon a tree. This is a religious shame. Deuteronomy tells us, you are not to leave his corpse on the tree overnight, but are to bury him that day. For anyone hung upon a tree is under God's curse. And this is what the crowd is condemning Jesus to when they're shouting to crucify him. They're saying, he's our enemy. Not only is he our enemy, you Gentiles, he's your enemy. He's against Caesar. He's your enemy too. Not only that, but he's God's enemy because he's under God's curse. This wasn't unexpected to Jesus. He knew what was gonna happen. He had been saying this whole time that he's gonna die at the hands of the Jews in Luke 9, 22. He's gonna die at the hands of the Gentiles, Luke 18. He's gonna die at the hands of humanity, Luke 9, 44. It's all on screen in front of you. It's necessary that the Son of Man suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, the Jews, be killed and be raised the third day. Let these words sink in. The Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men, so all of humanity. And in Luke 18, for he'll be handed over to the Gentiles, he'll be mocked, insulted, spit on, and after they flog him, they will kill him, and he will rise on the third day. So after all this, Pilate's bargain doesn't quite work out. At this point, if he really wanted to do what he wanted to do, to let Jesus go, he knows he's innocent. He's gonna need to crush this religious group. Otherwise, this religious group will crush him. Pilate's gonna have to use his military forces. I'm sure this is all running through his mind. Verses 23 to 25, but they kept up the pressure, demanding with loud voices that he be crucified, and their voices won out. So Pilate decided to grant their demand and release the one they were asking for, who had been thrown into prison for rebellion and murder. But he handed Jesus over to their will. So he gives in. Politically speaking, Pilate knows that it wouldn't really be in his best interest to ignore what the crowd is calling for. Like, you ever see people protesting in the streets and you wonder, man, like, they're not doing anything, they're just shouting, who cares? But the politicians know that they have some sort of power. It's too much pressure. It's not worth the risk for Pilate. And so he lets the criminal go. Look at the way Luke describes it. Pilate decided to grant their demand and release the one they were asking for who had been thrown into prison for rebellion and murder. He doesn't even use the name of the violent criminal that we just met, who was just released. It's instead a focus on his guilt. He was the one who had been thrown into prison for rebellion and for murder. But now he goes free and the one they asked for, Jesus, is surrendered to their will. There's this grave injustice being done here. It's one that we Christians commemorate each Easter. Every single moment of our lives, we talk about this. This great injustice is the only thing that sets us free because Jesus substituted. He substituted. 
Who did he substitute for? Luke doesn't give a name. It's his sins that come to our attention. And for ourselves, I'm sure we can do the same as well. You remove our own well-being from this. Like when we talk about confession, a lot of us don't like to do it. We like to hide away. If anyone accuses us of anything, we like to defend ourselves. We like to say we're without sin, that it's someone else's fault. But if you remove your own self-preservation, if you remove your name and your objective about it, what are we left with? Now we do know the name of the criminal. We've just met him, Barabbas. His name is Bar-Abbas. His name means son of the father. And this probably helps us to put ourselves in his shoes. We've talked about this at New Life for a little while. We're adopted into God's family. We're children of our great father God. We've gone astray. We're sons of the father. So what sins are you in prison for? We begin Holy Week like this. You know, we're standing just on the edge of Good Friday, as I mentioned, of Jesus' crucifixion and his death. This week, think about your sins. Think about what Jesus is substituting for. He's the author of life. He's the resurrection and the life. He goes to the cross in your place. We can spend time to confess to God what it is that we're imprisoned for, and we can come together again Good Friday here at 7.30 p.m. to look at the true Son of God, the true Son of the Father in the face. And then we can thank God that he made a way for us. For now, we can experience this in the communion. Now, when we come together for the communion, we do exactly as we're gonna do on Good Friday. We remember Jesus on the cross. He dies as our substitute so that we might be forgiven of our sins and we might be set free. But it remains as a present day reality for us too and not just a historical event because the communion is also our declaration of our continued dependence upon Jesus. He's the one whose grace we continue to need to be renewed in our hearts. Otherwise, we can't possibly face the day. The communion is also our future hope. It's a foretaste of this glorious day to come at King Jesus' return, when all will be made right. Now here at New Life, we celebrate and participate together in the communion on the first Sunday of each month. Please hear the reading of scripture from 1 Corinthians. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread and when he had given thanks, broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper and said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We're set free by who Jesus is and what he did. Not by our own righteousness, not by anything that we could possibly do. And so we come to the table under his righteousness. That means that this meal is for you too. Even if today is the first time ever that you're taking communion, we'd love to be able to welcome you 
if you're new to the faith, to place your trust in Jesus for your salvation. He substituted for you, and he's the only way to freedom. So pray to God today. Ask him to reveal the truth about his son. And then come and take the communion with us and let us know about the decision that you made. I'm going to invite uh, New Life's ministry directors to the front of each aisle. We're also going to have one who's going to be attending to the uh, volunteers who are going to join me on stage, the multimedia room, the children's ministry, and also the parents in the parents' room. The one that's roaming, he's most likely going to have the gluten-free communion for those that have allergies, so do find him if you have allergies. Once they get up here, um, please feel free to come forward and receive the communion as soon as you're ready and then take it back to your seats and wait for everyone to be served so that we can take it together.